Ladies and gentlemen, we are gathered here today to mourn the passing of a dear friend. This name is the season of summer. I'm officially wearing a tracksuit for the first time in months, which means summer's over. In the words of Public Enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. I love how the fact that I'm wearing a tracksuit is the harbinger of the summer being over. <laughs> it's official, ladies and gentlemen. Just because I wore a tracksuit means that summer's over. But seriously, if we're being real about it, uh, I'm looking I'm looking outside right now. It's well, I'm not looking outside, I'm, I I can do it now, but uh, while I'm talking. But um, it is over. It's raining here in the UK, it's just it's rubbish. It's it's I think it's Less, it's the first time it's been less than... It's 11 degrees right now. 11. 11. It was 20 last week. 11 degrees. No, it's over. It's over. It's rubbish. It's done. It's done. Summer's dead. Hope you hope you guys are happy, by the way, because I do remember that one day it was 40 degrees, and, you know, I've talked about it. It was hot. But the rest of the summer, come on, let's be real. It was great. It was great. The weather was decent. It was just that one day that you people just, just put too much on it. And you know what it is? You know what some is? It's that weird friend that you sometimes don't want in certain situations, but most of the time they're pretty decent people and they just liven up the room sometimes with their weirdness. So, and then when they're gone, you feel that a grey cloud, such as the grey cloud out of my window right now, just hangs over you and hangs over your squads without the weird person there. So, uh, salute to that weird person, whoever it is in your group, and salute to Summer. R.I.P. for another year. So now we are going to wait for winter, which, well, we're going to have to wait for autumn, which means it's just going to be two months of purgatory where we don't know what the weather's going to be the next day. It's going to either be raining, it's going to be either be 20 degrees, it's going to be clear skies and 5 degrees. We don't know what's going to happen here in the UK. It is that time. We're in weather purgatory here in the UK as we wait for autumn, and as we wait for the leaves to drop. <sighs> I love how I talked about the weather for two minutes. This is this is so British. I love it. <laughs> hope everyone had a good week. <laughs> hope everyone had a good week. Um, I was pretty okay. I was pretty chilled, to be honest. Uh, I, watched, uh, I watched a few episodes of Dear White People. I still need to finish that. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing, as I as I as I predicted, you know, is is in my opinion the best TV show out there right now. It's just so topical. It's the storytelling is amazing, the camera work is amazing, all of it is just great. The acting, the performance, whatever you want to pick, is all just simply great. You you can't find faults in it. Um yeah, so I'd basically watch that. Obviously I listen to some music here and there. If you want to know what I listen to during the week, just hit up a uh, hop over to Digging in Digits, new episode dropped yesterday. Uh, about Dr. Dre, and I also made a little uh, uh, lighter note about the birthday of hip-hop, which was a couple of days ago, and I, I kind of went on, a, <laughs> I think, at least six minutes of uh, of talking about it, so uh, hope hope you guys enjoy that if you ever hop over to DITD, so uh, if you want to talk about my music, if you want me to talk about my music, that's that's where you go, but yeah, other than that, it's been pretty okay, um, yesterday was pretty, I don't know, out there, it was a pretty, it was an outlier because it was just one of them days where, where I just wasn't switched on. It, my my stomach was just doing backflips all of a sudden. It was it was just one, it just wasn't working. I didn't eat an actual proper meal until like eight p.m. <laughs> it was silly. I just drank fluids all day. I don't know why. It's, it's really weird. But um, other than that, it's been a pretty okay week. Other than yesterday, really. But um, yeah, so it's it's pretty it's pretty good on on this end. So. Uh, just just catching up on some sleep today. <laughs> uh but yeah, other than that, it's been pretty good. So let's get into the show. We have a good show today. We have actual um we have all f- one topic for each, which is which is nice. I always like the balance. Uh, uh you know, sometimes I always, you know, regularly now these days I have like two of one topic and you know, that's not what that's always about. You know, it's good to have one of each. It's a healthy diet. So um I'm I'm glad to have that this uh, for this episode. For Madsies, before we begin, as always, we have the email, we have the Twitter, we have the Facebook page. If you want to hit me up on any of those avenues, be sure to do so. And 
yeah, hope you enjoy the show. Let's get into it. Let that beat drop. In a week where Scotland have planted to 22 million trees over the past year, just keeping up that vibe right there, Jeffrey uh, Epstein, who was jail, who was in jail waiting on a trial for sex trafficking, killed himself in jail, allegedly. There is a lot going on there, a lot of moving parts, so I'm just not going to touch that to be completely honest. Uh, the Premier League season is underway for another year. Big up Chelsea for getting dubbed 4-0. Um... <laughs> The UK Treasury are minting special 50p coins to commemorate the country leaving the EU. Now, I'm going to get that 50p, and I'm going to keep that 50p for the rest of my life. Just that one, just one, just one 50p. I'm just going to have it in my pocket constantly. Because when we, if we ever do this, if we actually do this, which is just increasingly becoming more and more likely, if this actually goes down and we sink to the depths of despair for lack of a better phrase because I feel like there, there's a punchy more there's a more punchy phrase there but I just couldn't get it if the if it's any if there's anywhere if it gets to the place that we dread I'm going to keep that as a big I told you so a, a big fat I told you so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna show that 50p to everybody and it's going you see this 50p this is a reminder of how fucking stupid we were how dumb we were. I'm going to show this to my grandchildren. You see this 50p right here? You see this 50p right here, boy? This 50p is when we left the EU. And it was the dumbest decision the UK's ever made. Okay? Just recognise that. I don't know why that's my old person voice. I hope I don't sound like that when I'm old. <laughs> just, just to say. <laughs> uh, Red Bull uh, pulled the trigger and promote Alex Albon to their team. Red Bull Racing uh, replacing Pierre Gasly's F1 story. Uh, I'm actually surprised they did, to be honest, uh, considering they have it's the summer break and obviously a uh, Belgium Spa Francorchamps in next uh, next race. I think next week, or in two weeks. Um, yeah, they actually did it. They went and gone and did it. They just swapped. They swapped the both drivers, and uh, that's going to be that's going to be interesting for how uh, Albon reacts to that because uh, that's a that's a big that's a big upscale because Toro Rosso, which is the sister team to Red Bull. You know, they're, they're, they're the system team for a reason. They're, you know, they're always in the midfield. They're just, you know, the scrappy little, uh, scrappy little do well, you know. And uh, and then Red Bull's just supposed to be the top dog. And, you know, they're, they're third in the championship right now. Uh, Max Verstappen is second in the champ- drivers' championship right now. So Alex Albon has to be the best number two possible. And, yeah, that's, that's going to be an interesting uh, trial period to focus on for the next half of the season. And also, ASAP Rocky is found guilty of assault in Sweden. Uh, that's a very fluid topic, so we shall. We'll, we, we might get to that next week. We'll, we'll, we'll see, because uh, I think that that ruling just dropped like today. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get into that right uh, unless uh, there's something more to it. Right. So we begin. I'm gonna begin with sports because also um, this um, this particular story that I wanted to cover, uh, I actually put it in a week where last week uh, talking about the Rich Paul rule. Uh, which is uh, which is basically a rule that the uh, National Collegiate Athletic Association, I think that's the I think NCAA's the NCAA, uh, who is the governing body of college sports in America, university sports, and they 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 are dumb as shit. They put simply, they're dumb as shit. They they do stupid rules. They have stupid just they have stupid morals, stupid opinions on everything. It's just they don't pay college players even though especially basketball and uh, American football players when they're in university they don't get any money and they actually can't get any money they can't even you know have any business savvy and actually you know sell their sell their whatever like autographing can't pay for that kind of they can't get paid for that kind of stuff and why meanwhile if they're you know the biggest face they can be the face of a university for a few years that's literally how it can possibly be uh, they can get that big where they're the face of a <laughs> they're the face of a university uh, from a sports and also from a just an overall you know uh, uh, what's the word optics uh, situation. They can get they, the university could take all the money from that, but the player can't get nothing. So uh, you know it's just it's just it's just that's that's just you know that's another story. But in particular, this particular story is about uh, agents, agency, and uh, M- potential NBA players. 
um, becoming uh, get, getting an agent. So how it usually goes down is that uh, when they declare for the draft, uh, the NBA draft, they have to obviously get an agent. And usually, and they can also get an agent in high school. They don't have to go to college, by the way. So that's um, an important part of it. But yes, the NCAA basically made a new rule um, saying that the agents have to have a bachelor's degree and they also have to take a specific, uh, a unique test um, in order from the NCAA to become an agent and, uh, and be authorized as an agent by the NCAA. It's silly. Is silly, and uh, so I had a few story. I had a few pieces that I wanted to go into, but um, I decided to go for this straight down the middle because the as as the uh, as the update in this article actually explains, um, there's actually been a uh, uh, it's actually been changed. The whole rule's been changed now, so um, we'll we'll clear that up as we go. Uh, I was going to get into a article by the Undefeated, which was actually kind of an overall point of it. Um, I'll, I'll read the title anyway. I'll just just for the, just for kicks. Um, it was called "The NCAA doesn't have a rich pool problem. It has a problem with black men." So you can see the what the angle I was going to go for that. But I decided to go for this simply because it was f- from the mouth of the person who is in the middle of this, Mr. Rich Paul. So I decided to go for this one instead. This straight down the middle. Uh, hopefully he actually gets into the point of you know NCA problem with black men, which is a genuine concern and should be and should be explored regardless. But I'll just get into this. Um, so there's an editor's note which is obviously saying this uh, you know written by Rich Paul and who he is. Um, there was an update the NCA announced on Monday afternoon, six hours after the publishing of this piece, that he, it has amended its agent certific- certification requirements and will no longer require a bachelor's degree as long as they are certified by the MBPA, which is the uh, National Basketball Players Association. So the rule is scrapped, but I feel like this is still something worth reading and worth getting into. So let's get into Rich Paul's op-ed. This is all by him, written by him, in his voice. Last week, the NCAA added a added new criteria for agents who want to work with quote-unquote student athletes. That's a, you know, that's a big point of it uh, when I was talking about, you know, Student athletes getting paid. They're actually athletes who are students. It's the other way around. But anyway, continuing on. They must pass a test, have three years of experience, and have completed their college degree. The media is calling it the Rich Paul Rule, which, while incredibly flattering, is not accurate. It has no impact on me or the business of Clutch Sports Group, which he's, um, you know, he's the, he's the head honcho of, basically, his, his uh, agency. However, it does, it does have a significant impact on people like me, and the NCAA should be called out for it. To be honest, I have no idea whether the NCAA adopted the new rule, specifically because of my work with Darius Baisley, as people have speculated, or if it, or if it is because they know there are more and more people like me fighting for their chance and challenging this antiquated system. The, harm, these, the harmful question, consequences of this decision will ricochet into, onto others who are trying to break in. NCAA executives are once again preventing young people from less prestigious backgrounds and often people of colour from working in the system they continue to control. In this case, the people being locked out are kids who aspire to be an agent and work in the NBA and do not have the resources, opportunity or desire to get a four-year degree. I actually support requiring three years of experience before representing a kid testing the market. I can even get behind passing a test. However, requiring a four-year degree accomplishes only one thing, systematically excluding those who come from a world where college is unrealistic. Does anyone really believe a four-year degree is what separates an ethical person from a con artist? Let's also be clear that once the the NCAA requires a four-year degree for athletes quote-unquote testing the waters, it's only a matter of time until this idea is socialised, no longer questioned, and then more broadly applied. We all know how this works. Unfair policy is introduced incrementally, so people accept it because it only affects a small group. Then the unfair policy quietly evolves into institutional policy. I'm not sure what the technical term is for that, because I didn't finish college, but I know it when I see it. That's a, that's a good bar right there. There are certainly other ways to achieve that goal without locking uh, locking people out of the system. Why don't they partner with universities on a one-year program for agents who don't meet their requirements but want to learn the business? Or work with existing agents who play by the rules to help mentor those who are trying to quote-unquote break in? There's others. There's another practical reason that this rule doesn't make sense. Respectfully, 
How do four years studying sports marketing in a classroom make you more qualified to represent a kid than working at Clutch Sports Group or for an MBA front office, or any other entrepreneurial business for that matter? All this will do is exclude the agent, uh, exclude the agent whose life experience helps them understand the needs of many of the, these players best. The barriers to entry for the next rich pool are already high enough. When I travel back to neighbourhoods like the inner city of Greater Cleveland where I'm from, young black kids tell me that they see my career as another path for them out of their troubled surroundings. They want to grow up to do what I do. That inspires me. So if the NCAA is invested both in helping young people get, an edu- get the education they need and in supporting student-athletes like they claim, then we are on common ground. No matter the result, what I'm focused on is helping aspiring agents and players figure out the best path forward for them so they can earn a living and be blessed with the opportunities like I have. Hopefully, the NCAA will help foster a system that will allow for that as well. But no matter what the NCAA does, I want young men and women, no matter their colour or background to know that this shouldn't discourage them from uh, aspiring to be in this profession. Continue to strive for greatness. The marathon of life will continue. Hashtag more than an agent. Okay, so that's all Rich Paul. Uh, It's actually via The Athletic. So if you want to read that, um, by all means, head off to The Athletic (laughs) to read it. Um, Yeah, so this, uh, this is a very fascinating story and it's a fascinating evolution and it's kind of a touchstone in the kind of I guess battle between the NCAA and people with actual morals because they it's clear it's clear that they you know they say this kind of stuff they say we want to you know obviously help student athletes become more you know all this all this positivity stuff you know and all this uh, aspirational talk but the rules say different. The rules are actually very constraining. I mean, like I said, if the, when they're student athletes, that means specifically that they are students first. But the way athletics works for especially college football and basketball and other sports, depending on the university, it's more about the sport. It's more about the athletic side of it. The 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 academics don't really measure up that much. It doesn't really matter for some for some cases. Um, if they don't, if 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 people don't want to learn whatever it is, if they don't want to do the academics and focus on their athletic career, then they should be able to. In my mind, um, obviously, it's important to if you're in university get a degree, sure, I mean, it makes sense to open doors for other avenues in case the sports stuff doesn't work out, but I feel like it's a risk that the athletes can should be able to take if they want to, um, but it's, it's, it's very fascinating how this works, and it's, and fascinating how, how different it is compared to the UK, I mean, yeah, obviously, obviously, there are a lot of professionals that come out of uh, that come out of university sports, and you know, but um, it's not as much as a uh, it's not like a well-oiled machine as much as the uh, as much as college sports is in America. You know, if you see a phenom in a particular sport, you know they're going to be pro, um, and it, and if they make pro, then uh, and then their career dips. Then that's just how it works sometimes. Honestly, when you know, sometimes you can be great in college, but as soon as you get to the pros, you're not as good. And, you know, that's just how it goes sometimes. Not everyone becomes LeBron James. Not everyone becomes, you know, uh, an Anthony Davis. You know what I mean? So not everyone becomes that. So it's all a matter of... It's all a matter of risk. And um, NCAA, I guess, make these rules in an attempt to try and take away those risks. You know, when they say, you know... Uh, you can't you can't sell your name basically you can't market your name you can't unless it's authorized by the university but then you're not going to get a dime of it i don't like that i i don't i don't like the sound of that that's my agency it's my name you're putting on there so why can't i get p from it it doesn't make sense just logically it doesn't make sense um but yeah they claim i guess they they claim a lot of things they really do they claim a lot of things and clearly by this rich pool rule that 
you know, it, it, like Rich Paul said, isn't technically about him because it doesn't affect him in a way. He's good. He's fine. He's got he's got his portfolio. It's for people who are like Rich Paul and want to be to take the same road Rich Paul took. They just want to blow up the road behind him. You know, they don't. They they're not blowing up the road in front of him. They're blowing it up behind him, so nobody can else get on that road. So with that said, in this particular case, again another another ball drop for the NCAA. Um, and I actually saw when when I was looking up this particular article, which I knew happened, I just wanted to look it up again. Um, there was a another there was another headline. I forgot where it's from, but it was like the NCAA is dying, and they know it. <laughs> and it's true that it is dying, and they know it. As soon as there are proper avenues for student athletes who are great at high school, who are great in in the high school ranks. If they're able to take another avenue, such as uh, an RJ Hampton going to Australia to play basketball instead of uh, going to co- uh, college and getting money for it, he's getting money to play basketball in Australia. I think it's Australia or New Zealand, somewhere in the Oceania. Um, because he's getting paid for that, that's all him. <laughs> no, that's all him. He doesn't have to take the NCAA rule, uh, the NCAA route. Once pe- more people do that, the NCAA are just gonna lose star talent, like a Zion Williamson, who is who who luckily uh, for them went to Duke for a year. That might not happen. The next Zion Williamson may not go to college. He may go to he may go to Australia. He may go to Europe and play basketball there. And obviously this is basketball specific, but yeah, it's just how it goes. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of moving parts here uh, in the future of college sports in America and uh, the NCAA the NCAA I should be actually getting away happy of saying that cuz saying NCAA is just annoying the NCAA is slowly rotting away and you know once other people find the avenues uh, alternative avenues it's a wrap move on to film and TV, uh, where I am going to continue my mini coverage of the streaming wars, the impending streaming wars that are going to happen about next year. Actually, fascinating uh, headline I saw yesterday, uh, CBS have and Viacom have merged, so that basically means uh, CBS are going to have their on their digital platform, all the Viacom shows, so that means uh, Showtime, Nickelodeon, BET, MTV, Comedy Central, that's all going to be in, under the CBS umbrella uh, in terms of streaming, and uh, if you mix it with like a HBO Max, who've got like stuff like TBS, and uh, uh, what else do they have? Uh, I forget, but you know, the, all these <clears throat> all these things are a matter of just preparation, <laughs> it really is, it's just everyone... Finding a buddy to link with and to say, hey, we are the best uh, possible streaming service you can get. But this all seems just a little bit too (sighs) futile. It just seems a little bit futile to me because as soon as Disney dropped Disney Plus, it's a wrap. Even for someone like Netflix, I don't think they can handle it. I think Disney will take a majority of the market share here. It's just, I just, it's just how it looks right now. Uh, I don't know if it says in this particular article I'm going to read, so I'm just going to say it anyway. They have, and I don't know if this is uh, just US or, or or worldwide, but they have, they have the ability now to say to, they they have the marketing campaign to say, uh, you can get in a bundle Disney Plus, so all the Disney stuff, all the films, all the TV shows, no, 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 ESPN Plus. So that's all ESPN content and Hulu, which is a half decent streaming service in the US, for twelve dollars a month. That's like ten pound. That's silly. That is absolutely silly. That is a st- stupid silly bundle. If anybody can get close to that price, then that will make it a little bit competitive. But that may not be enough. It may not be enough. Honestly, I just, I just, and 
<clears throat> this is kind of just uh, leading into the topic I'm going to get into, which, as you can guess, is Disney-related. And this is by Dana Harris and Chris Lindahl from IndieWire. Uh, Disney declares ho- declares Hollywood's future. Big movies in theatres, everything else is streaming. So think about that, just just on the face of it. So everything they put out in the cinema is going to be the fattest blockbusters, only block- blockbusters only. You know, none of none of the none of the mid range, none of the independent range, big money, big budget, high gross blockbusters only in cinemas. Everything else goes to streaming. Everything else. Imagine that. Think about that. That is that is how it's going to work now, especially for Disney, and probably for everyone else. But anyway, let's get into this. <clears throat> when the Walt Disney Company announced its third quarter earnings on August sixth, with a hundred seventy million dollar loss that came from underperforming Fox films, that wasn't the big news. "Quote: The fundamentals of Disney are strong and certainly staying strong," said Jimmy Schaeffler, CEO of media consultancy at the uh, consultancy media consultancy the Carmel Group. I don't know too many people who wouldn't argue they aren't getting stronger. However, with the with that quarterly report, one company effectively set the agenda for Hollywood's future. Big movies belong in theatres. A theatrical original is a prestige play. For everything else, they're streaming. Which will demand aggressive pricing and relentless marketing across all quadrants to reach the cycle scale needed for success. Expect all cylinders firing by 2021. Any questions? Eager, is it Eager? Iger, Bob Iger, that's it, uh, spoke plainly. His company had a loss, a real one. However, it stemmed from the acquisition of a movie studio that was in worse shape than than he'd hoped. And he wanted to make clear that had nothing to do with the Disney agenda, which already has seen $8 billion in box office this year alone. This year alone, ladies and gentlemen, that is dumb. Quote, I'll note that the performance of the Disney film studio continues to be incredibly strong, he said on uh, the earnings call. This quarter's theatrical slate, including Avengers Endgame, Aladdin, Toy Story 4, and the carryover success of Captain Marvel drove higher worldwide theatrical results compared to what was also an outstanding slate of films during the third quarter last year, which included Avengers Infinity War, Incredibles 2, and Black Panther. While the only underperforming Fox title he mentioned by name was the superhero flop Dark Phoenix, the others were Stuber, Breakthrough, and Fox Searchlight's Tolkien, which Disney released in May. Those films, along with The Art of Racing in the Rain, a Fox title set for release Friday, seem quaint in the face of a 21st century box office environment that that loves blockbusters almost exclusively. And, as Iger said, that won't happen again on Disney's watch. Fox was going in a, quote, new direction, applying the same discipline and creative standards behind the success of Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm. If those movies are good enough, they'll go to theatrical. Others will be destined for Hulu and Disney+. Plus. Among, among the once lucrative big-screen franchises headed, home, fed, headed for home viewing development are Home Alone, Night at the Museum, Cheaper by the Dozen, and Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Oh yeah, by the way, there's, there's going to be a Home Alone remake so uh take uh t- take take uh, get triggered by that if you really want to because i certainly am uh, it's estimated time for all of these changes to take effect as i got told jp morgan managing director alexia quandrani a couple of years meanwhile the full press marketing push for disney plus starts this month with members of d23 the 10 year old official fan club for the walt disney com- company which costs a hundred dollars a year getting the first opportunity to buy the service, which would be pushed through all Disney touchpoints worldwide. Parks, hotels, credit cards, I could go on and on, said Iger. Disney streaming plans could be a major disruption to Netflix, Schaeffler said, saying the company is brilliant to bundle three platforms, Disney+, Plus, Hulu, and ESPN+, Plus for $13, sorry, 13 not 12 my bad, a dollar more than Netflix's standard package. It's going to be able to access such a remarkable demographic, he said, including kids, families, adults, and sports lovers. And while the price point may not make Disney a lot of money to start, it will allow them to count possibly hundreds of millions of subscribers worldwide from whom the company can collect data to keep viewers hooked with relevant original programming, just like Netflix. Finally, there's the indies, the market sector that lives and dies by uh, contrarian visions. 
Uh, Fox Searchlight barely rated a mention on the call with Iger saying only Fox Searchlight will continue to make the prestige films it's known for while expanding its high quality original storytelling into the DTC space. That take which suggests that only awards plays uh, are assured theatrical runs could be a greatish cult- culture shock for the specialty division ran uh, than for its major studio counterparts. It would put searchlight acquisition offers toe-to-toe with streamers like Netflix and Amazon, brackets, which is also becoming more and more selective, uh, much more selective about booking theatrical runs. For indie filmmakers who have long viewed Fox Searchlight distribution as the best of all possible worlds, it's likely they will see a trickle-down of the binary marketplace. Here's what it might look like. The very, very top films with awards potential will see generous theatrical offers and bidding wars that price out all of, all but the deepest pockets. The highest quality films with no clear awards play will also see strong offers and bidding wars, but from streamers and considerably less generous offers from independent theatrical distri- distributors. For everyone else, it looks like a struggle, although they could also benefit from the streamers' ongoing arms race to acquire the content mass necessary to achieve market dominance. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. There's one more paragraph there, and I skipped over once. If you want to read the whole thing, uh, be sure to do so. Um, so this is it. This is this is the this is the landscape that's being created right here in front of our very eyes, and for the next, you know, and it's going to be implemented in the next two years, and will possibly be the future for we don't know how long. <laughs> I think it's um. I personally think that is the this blockbuster thing. I genuinely think it's going to is is a bubble. I I really think it's a bubble right now that it, that at some point will burst. Um, it it really just depends on the quality of the films. I think uh, if the blockbusters themselves are still high quality, like we have seen in the past ten years, done especially by Marvel, obviously, if we have those high quality films, you know, forever, then they'll stay here forever. But if there's like a year of whack blockbusters, we they, they will have to they will have to they will have to look into that. That will have to be looking looked into, and then if on the flip side, uh, independent films make a make a huge boom again, as like they have in the past ten years also, because you know there have been amazing independent films, and I think they have garnered a lot of attention. Moonlight, for example. Um, they still exist, and I think they still will be there. Like the, like it, like the article said, you know, there's going to if they're high quality films and they they're going to garner awards attention, then they will get their theatrical release. They will get you know they'll get the offers that they that they have been getting. But if there's something like a, um, I think that's how it is now. There's just another tier right now where it's straight to streaming. It's just, it's the same as uh, straight to home video back in the day, in the 90s, 80s. It's basically the new home, it's basically the new home video, is it not? Where you're going straight to streaming. And it's already been happened. Uh, uh, there's the, um, there's the films, uh, The Intent, which is a, uh, which was a British uh, production, I think done by uh, Purple Gecko. And they, and they went straight to Netflix. I went straight to Netflix. I I, they probably had a premiere somewhere, and you know, screenings here and there. But they they were they were primarily put on Netflix, and I think they're still there. If you want to watch them, they're actually quite uh, entertaining. Uh, just you know, traditional British a- action films, very int- very uh, intriguing. You know, this is what this is what's going to happen if you don't if you're not that big independent film, you know, like a Moonlight that's going to get all the awards attention. You're just going to go straight to streaming now. Now, whether you find that a positive thing or not um, is up to you. I think of it as both. Obviously, it gives people the opportunity to have a pl- have a space to 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 create these works still and to have them shown. But it also creates a level of dilution where it's just all the all the you know half decent independent films or half decent. Uh, mid mid range, uh, mid range films, uh, you know, like family comedies or rom coms, stuff like that. They're all gonna, they're all just gonna be packed into streaming services. They're just gonna be shoved into some place, whether it's a Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, 
uh, Canopy, Criterion Collection, whatever, you know, something like that. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't really. It doesn't really bode well in the long run, where all the films are just going to be stacked in there, and you, you know, you know just it's just going to be a luck of the draw. If someone finds your title and then reads the and reads the um and reads the logline, and they're like, "Oh yes, I'll give that a watch," like we all do when we're browsing when we're browsing for shit, you know, that's that's just kind of how it is. It's the luck of the draw. If it just turns up on their list and it turns up on their algorithm, and you know, it's a, it's a film that they have. That they will genuinely like because that's how Netflix do it. I don't know how the others do it. But you know, I'll watch certain films and then they go, because you watch this, here's this. You know, suggestions. That's how it's going to work. And that may persuade people to focus on trends more. You know, if if there is a if there is a rom com boom, if there's a romantic comedy boom, then they might have then some people production companies especially, they'll focus on that and they'll go, alright, more rom-coms. And you know, this isn't new, this part, you know, this part of the conversation, this isn't new. Trends. This isn't new. You know, film noir from back in the day. One comes out, it really, does really well, loads of film noir come out in the next like 10 years in America. Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard to, to, to a point. You know, Casablanca. You know, it's, it's, it's a trend. That was a trend. And this is also going to be a trend where if you if if there's a good film that comes out and it's not a blockbuster and it garners awards attention, then you know where the then you know where some some other films are going to go. They might dip into that a little bit. It's the same with music. It's the same with film. Same with TV. It's just how it is. It's a trend. But this is all just under the umbrella of everyone just hustling to either beat Disney at their own game. Well, they beat, beat Disney at Netflix's game. That's basically what it is. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the third time I've talked about, you know, the impending streaming wars now in the past few weeks. And uh, I'm just saying, this is it. This is the future of film and television right here. And Disney have already made it clear. Big blockbusters... Guaranteed uh, uh, um, uh, theatrical releases. Everything else, we'll see. Is that a good thing? Depends who you are. So we're going to move on to life now. And uh, I actually found this minutes before recording actually I didn't really have a life topic I was just uh, trying to find something uh, but I think this is worthy um, and actually it's obviously links to the overall conversation of uh, of where we're at right now as a society in America and also in Britain and also in the world in general so, you know racism doesn't isn't a western construct <laughs> well is it, is it a western construct oh that's a deep that's a deep question is it hmm Interesting. We'll get we'll get to that later. <laughs> no, we won't. We'll never get to that. That's too deep a conversation. Um, but th- this is um, this is a kind of half interview, half article here. Um, there is actually a twelve minute uh, twelve minute video uh, interview uh, done by Mr. Owen Jones of the Guardian, uh, who interviews Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, and the title of this particular article I'm going to read is Ibram X. Kendi on why being racist is not enough. Of why not being racist, sorry, is not enough. <laughs> that would have been a dramatically different, <laughs> a dramatically different article. <laughs> oh, being racist is not enough. Imagine. <laughs> oh God! Oh God! Yes, he says why not being racist is not enough. Okay, <laughs> just to be clear. Okay, let's get into this. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, like I said, there is a 12-minute uh, video interview with them too. I uh, highly suggest you watch it. It's a good watch. Uh, you le- learn a lot of things uh, about Kendi if you if you haven't heard of him. And there's actually a little bit of a uh, bio that uh, Irwin Jones does on here, which is uh, which is quite good. So I'll get into that as well. So yeah, let's get let's get into it. Um, it's a moment that disturbs Ibram X Kendi to this day. It was the 90s, and Kendi, then in his final year of high school, was due to deliver a speech at a public uh, speaking contest held in Martin Luther King's honour. 
quote, when we think of American history in the 90s, we're really talking about the period in which people in both political parties, people of all races, were looking at the increasing violent crimes among black youth, particularly in urban neighbourhoods, as fundamentally caused by a problem with the black youth, the growing percentage of single-parent households, he says, setting the scene. We had people thinking that the cause of that was that there was, no, there was something wrong with young black mothers, unquote. Both white and black people thought that there was something wrong with the black youth. They didn't value education enough. They were focused on having sex and getting pregnant. They were, quote-unquote, not being trained while uh, being trained well by their parents, unquote. This was the decade in which black people were labelled as, quote-unquote, super predators. These racist ideas have been ham- had been hammered into Kendi's skull, and he reproduced them in a speech in front of thousands of predominantly young, black young people, and they cheered him for it. Quote, on that day was uh, was supposed to be celebrating black youth. We were a representation about all the things right about black youth. All I could think about was all the things wrong with the black youth. I swallowed these racist ideas whole because they were largely fed to me by older people, he says. A softly spoken giant with tie back dreadlocks wearing a suit complete with a pocket handkerchief. Kendi is a highly charismatic historian and author who is emerging as one of the preeminent intellectuals on race. He was born in Queens, New York, in Ronald Reagan's U.S. His, parent, his, his parents met in 1970 at a conference focused on black theology, which he describes as, quote, the notions that black Christians should use Christianity as a form <clears throat> excuse me, and source of liberation, that Jesus is black, that God is black, that the church needs to be relevant to the black community, unquote. They became Christian ministers and instilled, him, uh, instilled in him this fusion of Christian ideas and black power. As a young child, he saw them focusing, sorry, he saw them discussing constantly how to challenge racism and, quote, ensure that black people could truly be free in the United States. As a student, he changed his name, uh, middle name from Henry to Zolani, uh, X-O-L-A-N-I, Zulu for Be Peaceful. After learning about the Portuguese explorer Henry, the navigator's part in the slave trade. Then on his wedding day, he and his wife changed their surnames to Kendi, which means the loved one in Kenyan language of Meru, according to the New Yorker. A former journalism student, his PhD dissertation looked back at the radical uh, student movements of the 60s. In 2016, he won the National Book Award for Stamped from the Beginning, which aimed to tell, quote-unquote, the definitive history of racist ideas in America. In the age of Donald Trump and right-wing populism, his new book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, anti-racist, I don't know why I say anti-racist, I should say anti-racist, it's not anti, I'm not American, uh, could hardly be more relevant. At its core is a superficially simple idea that somehow, when you read it, feels like a light switch being flicked on. That any genuine opponent of racism has to identify as an anti-racist, not simply as, quote, not racist. In fact, Kendi believes US history can be seen as a battle between anti-racist and racist ideas, quote. I think most people across the world are taught to believe and believe themselves to be not racist, he explains. Even obvious racists often do not self-identify as such, he notes. From slave owners to colonizers to 21st century white nationalists. I am the least racist person in the, there is anywhere in the world, the racist US president declared in July. Quote, I don't think people realize that when they self-identify as not racist, they're essentially identifying in the same way as white supremacists, says Kendi. Proclaiming that you are not racist does not require anyone to consider how they should fight racism. To be anti-racist, on the other hand, anti-racist, not anti-racist, on the other hand, means developing a philosophy that directly confronts that of a racist. Racists hold that, quote, certain radical groups are better or worse than others, Kendi says, while anti-racist expresses emotions that the racial groups are equals. There is no middle ground, he says. We either support systems and policies that promote racial inequality with enthusiasm or by our own passivity, or we actively fight them. Quote, so the term not racist not only has no meaning, but it also connotes that there is uh, this sort of in-between safe space sideline uh, that a person can be on, where there is no neutrality, he explains. We're either all being racist or anti-racist. This is why he wrote this book. And he couldn't define not racism and wanted to answer those who asked, how do I be anti-racist? What does this mean in practice? For one, reparations for centuries of oppression and systemic injustice against black people has become a mainstream demand of anti-racist movements in the US. 
has been characterized, uh, caricatured sorry, as writing a check to African-American citizens. But in the 2016 manifesto, an umbrella group called the Movement for Black Lives detailed what it could mean. Universal access to education for all black people, a guaranteed livable income, a national curriculum that centers on the legacy of colonialism, colonialism and slavery, and access to uh, access and control of food, housing and land. White median wealth in the United States is about 10 times more than the black median wealth, so there is a mass- massive racial wealth gap, he says. Uh, that was a quote. And it is growing. How is it possible, Kendi asked, to reduce, let alone eliminate such a gap without reparations? This will be anti-racism in action. Um, there is much more to this, much more to the article itself, and I th- uh, but I think my point has been made, and uh, it obviously gives us enough to go on. If you want to read the rest of it, which I highly suggest you do, please do, and that is on The Guardian by Owen Jones. So, this is something that I've literally, it really is a light switch, actually, that, uh, that, that sentence about, you know, you don't know it until you know it, as, as soon as he says it, it's kind of a light switch open, and it really is that for me. Um... I I I I thought initially thinking about it that it was that it was um I guess too I want to pick my words carefully here that it was I guess not necessary you know I I I can't, I don't know why but I thought it was not necessary because I guess I thought there were enough people doing the right thing. But now that I'm thinking about it, and now that I think about, you know, in historical terms, historical contexts, it really is that black and white. It really is that you either are or not racist, or anti-racist, actually. Saying Saying you're not racist is... I guess it is very it is very dismissive, isn't it? Yeah, I'm 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 um you know I'm not against um, LGBT uh, people, you know. Okay, that's that's fine, but is it? <laughs> but is it though? That's the question you have to ask. Is it? I'm not racist. Is it though? Is that fine? It's not in my mind now that I'm thinking about it. I don't. It isn't fine, is it? It's, I'm I'm kind of learning on the fly actually in my mind. So if I do ramble on, just uh, just uh, be aware, just because uh, I'm I'm just thinking I'm thinking out loud here actually, uh, in the moment. It is very fascinating. If you imagine imagine actually if you were you know, Churchill isn't uh, Churchill probably said at one point in his life I'm not racist, but <laughs> that's what I have to say. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you, you did some racist shit, so, um, yeah, you kind of are, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think this is a, this can be a very politicised attitude, but it really shouldn't. You know, it, it really shouldn't be a political attitude, um, and it and it is, let's not get it wrong, it is. There are a lot of, you know, Jacob rees Mogg can say he's not racist, but... You know what I mean? There's there's some receipts. <laughs> Boris, uh, this actually this um links into um this can link into uh, excuse me uh, uh I saw on Channel Four News uh, last week there was a little piece on uh, Boris Johnson who uh, you know claims to be a feminist right but he's made votes uh, such as a uh, tampon tax you know he kept he he, he voted to uphold that. That's not feminism, is it? <laughs> that's 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 generally just anti-feminist. That's an anti-feminist vote right there. So you can you can say you're a feminist, right? It's easy to say it, and it's also easy to say I'm not racist. But your actions say otherwise. Your actions say otherwise, and this is this is kind of not. This is kind of obviously a little bit different, considering that you're either a feminist or anti-feminist. Or you're feminist or not feminist, and being that not feminist means can mean you're an anti-feminist because you're not putting the you, you're not you know uh, you, you're not putting your mind to the fact that if you if you're quote unquote not a feminist, right? So what does that mean now? That means you 
don't support women being equal in the workplace, for example. You 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 don't. You know what I mean? There's is is that that middle that middle ground is on very thin ice, and it's the same with racism. I'm not racist. Okay. So what? <laughs> so 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 you're anti-racist? You know, you, you, you have to you have to. I think it's a mindset. I think it's partly a mindset here where you you have to bang it in your mind that you're either a racist or you're anti-racist. You can't sit in the middle anymore. And I don't think it's ever been enough, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it, it has really never been enough. Because it leaves you, it gives you this out to, you know, sit on the sidelines and watch this shit unfold. You need to pick a side. I don't think sitting on the fence, sitting on the fence really does nothing. Sitting on the fence really does nothing. Saying you're not racist is, is sitting on the fence. And it's just, and it just leaves you that option to just, you know, throw away that whole conversation of racism out of your mind. Where you can just live your life and not think about racism. You know, you can say, I'm not racist. Bye. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go do my things. (laughs) You know, it's, 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 it really requires a, it really requires a, an attitude. And, you know, some people can find that exhausting. You know, I find, I, you know, I, everyone finds racism exhausting. Everyone finds world hunger exhausting. Everyone finds war crimes exhausting. And all this negative shit is exhausting. Let's be real. But, it's something that needs to be accounted for. And you need to pick a side. Because, white supremacists say the exact same thing. And I'm not saying you're a white supremacist, but if they're saying the same thing and you're trying to distance yourself from them, then don't say the exact same shit that they say. They're not racist, but you know they they shoot they shoot up people in America anyway. That's just how it is. <laughs> Tommy Robinson can say he's not racist, but we know what's up. So you're either a racist or an anti-racist, and we have to we have to blow up that fence. You can't sit on the fence no more. You have to you have to you have to pick a side here, and you know that fence that fence is that fence is uh, it's got a sticky bomb on it, and uh, someone someone has to press that button. Somewhere. So we finish on the final uh, topic of the day, which I've left quite happy. Uh, it's about it's a, it's a nice story. Uh, since it was the birthday of hip hop a few days ago, um, I wanted to I wanted to give a little story on a particular part of hip hop history. Uh, if you want to check, if you want to peep my personal connection with hip hop, again, you have digging in digits for that as part of my lighter notes. So if you want to get into that, get into that. But I wanted to get into a little story. Uh, about the original king of rap, Mr. Curtis Blow, and this is via the Undefeated, which is Happy Birthday to Curtis Blow. Was his birthday a few a few days ago as well? Uh, so I thought it would be a nice connection. This we can also celebrate, you know, Curtis Blow, but we can also celebrate celebrate birthday of hip hop and hip hop history in general. So this is written by uh, Todd Stereo Williams, who does amazing, amazing Twitter threads about just hip hop history stories, and it's just. That dude is a wealth of knowledge. It's just great. It, it, we need more people like Stereo Williams. What a G. What a G. But this is, um, this is a a great piece on Curtis Blow. So um, let's get into this. And hopefully you guys learned something about the original, the OG king of rap. Let's get into it. As a genre, hip-hop hits the ball f- big 4-0 this September. That's when the seminal 1979 single Rapper's Delight celebrates its 40th anniversary. Wildly, widely lauded as the first hip-hop hit. Rapper's Delight opened the floodgates for a host of rap records to gain mainstream appeal in the late 1970s and early 1980s, uh, as artists like Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five, Cold Crush Brothers, Sequence, Busy B, The Funky 4 Plus One, and The Treacherous Free took hip-hop from the South Bronx parks to the recording studio. But most, uh, but all, of all the early hip-hoppers who broke ground, 
who broke that ground, no one crashed the mainstream quite like Curtis Blow. Blow's musical legacy is without question. Born Curtis Walker in 1959, Blow, who turned 60 on August 9th, happy birthday, Blay, birthday, was the first rapper to sign with a major label and the first to become a mainstream star. Signing with Mercury Records in 1979, Blow was managed by an up-and-coming Russell Simmons and had instrumentalist Orange Crush playing on his tracks. His charisma made him, made him hip-hop's first major solo star, and his hooky songs got him airplay in places most hip-hop hadn't reached yet. Before forming Run DMC, a teenage Run got his big start as Blow's DJ, and Blow would collaborate with rhythm and blues stars Renee and Angela, and produce tracks for the platinum-selling Fat Boys. Between 1979-1985, Blow delivered classic radio hits like The Breaks, Christmas Rappin', If I Ruled the World, and Basketball. Songs that would be sampled and revisited by everyone from Nas to Next. With the possible exception of turntablist Grandmaster Flash, Blow is arguably the most famous of hip-hop's pre-Run DMC pioneers. Flash turned 60 back in January 2018, and there wasn't much celebration for the hip-hop legend. But that's not an anomaly. 40 years after Rapper's Delight, early hip-hop tends to be celebrated for its historical importance, but not as classic music. It doesn't help that the music born of the Bronx and spread via boutique labels such as Sugar Hill and Enjoy had fairly fairly limited audience. Artists who laid laid the foundations in the days before Yo! MTV raps and multi-platinum albums weren't always visible outside of the 1970s and 80s New York City, so acts like the Cold Crush Brothers and the Treacherous Three didn't have the reach that their funk and disco contemporaries enjoyed, and so many of these acts can still sell tickets and enjoy major streaming numbers today. Uh, but that's why Curtis Blow matters so much. He had the most mainstream appeal. He broke through to pop and R&B audiences at a time when rap music wasn't see- was still seen as a novelty. His signing with Mercury game hit gave him a platform most of his peers didn't have, dubbed the King of Rap, Blow gained a much higher profile as hip-hop is lauded for its ability to affect contemporary trends and tastes. It should also be recognised as a genre and art form that has a long history. There is no longer a young genre, per se. It's been four decades since the Sugar Hill Gang and more than 25 years since The Chronic. Part of recognising the maturation of hip-hop would be to acknowledge how rich its legacy is. That means celebrating the greatness of its pioneers not just for paving the way, quote-unquote, for what came after, but also for the merits of the actual music. On April 30th, Blow announced via Instagram his hospitalization, hospitalization for heart surgery. He explained that he would be undergoing uh, surgery at UCLA Medical Center. Quote, I am preparing for an aortic artery, artery repair procedure tomorrow morning, read the post-caption. The procedure will stabilise the artery from further damage caused by the hematoma I con- con- contacted, it's just a contracted, I think, uh, from my recent travels to China. And just three days later, Blow shared that he was on the road to recovery. Hey everyone, I started physical therapy yesterday and occupational therapy today. I'm on my way to a full recovery, 100%. Thank you all for your prayers and well wishes. I love you all and we'll be back really soon. God is the most powerful in these times. Please keep the prayers going up so the blessings will come down to god be the glory amen but shortly thereafter simmons shared troubling news fuck captain kurt damn he just informed me these the prayers are needed please put at Curtis blow the original king of rap back into your prayers he had been called to second emergency open heart surgery Curtis blow is a survivor but this is not good i say this to all who loved his music his heart is bigger than his music his family is a testimony to his greatness his loving wife of at least 35 years and beautiful children are examples of willingness to give. Let's all give him the prayers and our blessings. Update from his uh, wife Shirley Curtis. Uh, update from wife Shirley Curtis. Heart is beating on on its own. There are cl- they are closing. Uh, should they are closing? Should finished closing in less two hours. Glory to God. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Shirley, let us continue to pray. Blow recovered from the ordeal and shared that he was recuperating, but his health scare was a reminder that hip-hop's earliest stars are truly elders now. Those names like Curtis Blow, Grandmaster Flash, Treasure 3, and Spoonie G, as well as uh, even earlier pioneers like Cool Herc, Busy B, and DJ Hollywood, deserve more than to be relegated to niche status. 
it may not be realistic to expect early rap acts to suddenly be thrust into the epicenter of contemporary pop culture. But it's not a stretch to suggest we show these artists these kind, the kind of love we've shown to beloved, beloved rock and soul legends of the 50s, 60s and 70s. A Curtis Blow tribute at a hip-hop award show doesn't sound all that impossible, does it? Couldn't you see a cool little melody with Nas flipping If I Ruled the World as a nod, Romeo milking nostalgia with his cover of Basketball, and maybe having Next co- remind everyone that where Too Close originally comes from, that would be Blow's Christmas rapping. And close with Everybody Knows universe, Universality of the Breaks. I have to, uh, just, just a side note, I have to say the breaks like that, because it's just, it's just how it's said. You can't not say it like this, it's so fun. The breaks. Maybe that's wishful thinking, or maybe it's already on the radar. Let's be positive, but as hip-hop elders middle age, it's past time we start treating it like a classic genre, and it's time to we treat its founding fathers like the music legends that they are. Give Curtis Blow his flowers, the man who should who would rule the world. Okay, so that's um, that's the whole thing, and I you know and that's a, it's just a it's just a story that I wanted to I guess give, and you know just a little, just a little, just just a little gem of hip hop knowledge for you guys, uh, just to just to just to get you going uh, for whatever you're doing while you're listening. Um, it is true, and I think it's something that I've I guess I haven't. I haven't really been trying, I guess, hard enough to account for uh, as it pertains to older, uh, uh, the the elders of hip hop now, and it is how it is, you know. When I, sometimes I, 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 I say that you know, hip hop in its, you know, you know, in the in the overall sense, in the broadest of lenses, is still really young, you know, forty five, nearly fifty years old, um, is is you know pretty young. Compared to obviously stuff like jazz and rock and roll, you know, it's pretty young. Even soul music, disco, you know, it's stuff like that. That's all. That's all old. This is this is kind of young, uh, still. But in you know lifespan, I guess the uh, lifespan is in is in a middle age, and and now its pioneers are in that middle age, and. <laughs> you know, and uh, there's going there's going to be a time when they there's going to be a time in I don't know how many years, couple of decades, where they're just going to go one by one, and we won't be able to. We we always have that point where we just didn't give their flowers, and that will just be a little bit depressing. That click represents, uh, uh you know, hip hop pioneers dying. By the way, <laughs> but you know, it's it's. It's ominous to think about, and uh, we 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 have the opportunity to do what I guess soul acts couldn't do, what blues and jazz legends couldn't do. They didn't have the internet to 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 say to them to say for themselves that you know who who they are, and we have the tools to do that now. We have the tools to cement their legacy. You know, this year. There is going to be in the Bronx. There is uh, going to be uh, a breaking of ground for a universal hip hop museum, and they're already receiving donations. You know, records, memorabilia. They're already receiving that, and they're going to they're going to break ground this year, and they're going to start building a universal hip hop museum, which is long overdue. And hopefully, in a couple of years, I'll get to visit that place, and uh, it'll be absolutely beautiful, it'll have literally everything you'll need, and, but, I will say, regardless of that, I mean, like I say in most of, most of, uh, most of my, you know, most of my podcast episodes, it's up to you to learn, to learn it yourselves, and I'm not expecting you guys to learn, you know, all of hip-hop's history, <laughs> I'm not asking you to do that, uh, but I'm asking, even, even, even if it was, um, even if something you care about, actually, there is always a history behind it. There is always roots behind it, and the deeper you go, the more knowledge you get. And trust me, there is no such thing as negative knowledge. <laughs> there is no such thing as negative knowledge. There is no such thing as too much knowledge. No such thing. Okay, so don't. Just don't sell yourself short. 
never sell yourself short on on the learning uh, aspect of your lives. There's always something to learn. And the more you do, in my mind, the more well-rounded you can be as a person and the more richer you will feel as a person. Not in monetary, not in monetary sense, just, just I guess, spiritually, I guess, and, and mentally. The more you know, the, just, the more you just can break things down and it's just, it, it does feel quite, it does feel liberating. It really does. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, I'll end that there. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, I tried to keep it um, well. You know, it, was, it wasn't it wasn't too dark. I will say, um, and, you know, it's been as dark as as, as it has been. Uh, but I wanted to leave on a on a, I wanted to leave on a kind of inspirational note, uh, on an aspirational note. So I hope I did that well. Uh, but yeah, this has been uh, from Fifth Home Podcast Network. I've been trying to tell you this what's good. Music is too much. My vanilla. Uh, interludes is Vista by Poldor. They have all their music via Bandcamp in the link uh, links below. Be sure to look them up. Thank you to Chill Hop Records for uh, the ability to use. And with that said, have a good week, everybody. I hope to do the same. And until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.